Well, many of you um, know, and some of you may not. We wanted to make sure we were on the, the same page, understanding, and uh, it's a heavy heart that I have to tell you that this last week, um, one of our own brother, Doug Connor, took his own life. Uh, many of us knew Doug, a loving husband, a loving father, a loving friend. And our hearts break with Crystal, his wife, with his three children, Jayla, Elena, Braden. And it's these kind of times when I'll tell you the, the list of questions are a lot longer than the list of answers. And we come here today to weep with those who weep. And walking through this process with the family this week, I mean, it has just been unbelievable to see God's heart through our body. And Crystal, um, talking to her, how, how, how touched she's been. One of the things she said to me was, man, I've never, I never knew how um, to comfort people in their grief. And as she's seen the body of Christ, us with, with Jesus, with Jesus with skin on, our, his hands and feet, loving in such specific ways, hugs and tears and meals and words of love and truth, and I thought about this week, the way that so many in our body have specifically come alongside Crystal and her family, who have walked through similar paths, and who have grieved in, in similar ways to the way she's grieving. And, and I thought of what Paul said when he said in 2 Corinthians 1, we comfort others as we have been comforted. And one of the things God uses through our suffering is to prepare us to love other people who suffer well. And we grieve we grieve, and it's real. And, 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 and Thessalonians, Paul said, I want you to know what happens to us after we die so that you will grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We grieve today. We grieve deeply. And it's going to be a journey as long as life is grieving for the Connor family. But we do not grieve without hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and there's never a more timely need to talk about what we're talking about in this series well, we've said that, that the gospel is the power of God to save. And that our Savior has conquered the grave. It's not that death is not real, but He's removed the sting of death. That our God has conquered sin and brokenness. And through Jesus, we are offered hope, we're offered life, and we are offered peace. And this is our only hope. And we live in a world that desperately needs hope. And so we preach, we preach the book of Romans, the power of the gospel. And we, we want to be a people who are known, a people who push the chips all the way into the middle of the table, a people who put a flag in the ground, that our defining marker, the message that we shout, the life that we live, all revolves around the good news, and the good news is about a person. Is the person of Jesus Christ and what his death and burial and resurrection means for every moment, every aspect of our lives. And we've been walking through this, this book. We just started last week, and, and many have called the book of Romans the greatest letter ever written. And that we've seen throughout history that Romans has been used as a spark to ignite forest fires like the, like the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, like the Great Awakenings in, in Britain and in America. 
And we saw last week in the opening verses, the first seven verses, that it's Paul. Paul is the author of this letter, and he wrote it to these churches in Rome to be passed around from house church to house church. And we saw two main purposes that Paul wrote this letter. Number one, to introduce himself. Remember, he had never been to Rome. And he said, this is who I am, and this is what I'm all about. And I praise God for that, because we have the fullest, most like, systematic layout that we've ever seen of the gospel here in the book of Romans. And then the other purpose we saw was for unity. Remember, we said there's a division between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. That Emperor Claudius kicked the Jewish uh, people out of Rome, and then five years later, they come brought back in, and now there's this disconnect, this division between the Jewish and Gentile believers. And we're going to see throughout this, this book how God shows how the gospel is the only thing that can unite these two groups. And then I want to also remind us that we, we talked about this is not just about coming Sunday morning to be fed. That is, we're called to be disciples who make disciples that we have to know how to feed ourselves and then go out and, and feed other people. If we're going to be obedient to this command, and so one of the practical steps we're taking in this is you go to our website and you go to the sermons tab where all the sermons you can download and listen to them. There's also under there, it's a Romans reading plan. And we want to kind of lay out a weekly reading plan, a daily plan so that you can get in there. This is this, this next week coming up. We're going to just kind of put that on the, on the website so that you can be reading through the passages. We're going to go into the next week and other passages in the Bible that link to that so we can learn how to feed ourselves. And there's also a physical copy in your bulletins that you can take home for those of you that don't mind killing trees. That's cool. So uh, you can have that. And there's also in there, if you're new with us, there's a, a, an outline in there with some blanks so you can follow along for the sermon and what we call the end of their questions for the car ride. That way, again, that we're digging into the word together as you're driving home, that we're asking questions. But what, did the, what did the Bible, what did God mean when he said that? So we want us to be able to dig in. There's some tools for you to be able to do that. But the other half of our vision sentence, we said we want to be a, 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 group, a, a group of people centered around the gospel. We're a gospel-centered community, but we're also a gospel-centered community. And, and tragedies like we've experienced this last week with Doug, they remind us of what really matters in life. They kind of recalibrate our, our priorities. And, and they, 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 they bring us to a place, and I'll tell you what, ministry... Ministry is not primarily about events. It's not primarily about just like putting on a really good service on Sunday mornings. It's not about programs. It's not about dollar signs and, and head counts. Ministry is ultimately about people. Life is ultimately about relationships with God and with one another. And you know, I've started, one of the things I've started to do in my kind of daily rhythms is to keep a journal. And just simply kind of write, what, what, what did I do the day before? And I just kind of start out by a schedule of the things that I did that day. And as I think about it, I write down the things I did and the people I did them with. I then, I then go to a time of just thanking God for things that he did, uh, things from the day before. And what I've found is most of the time, what I'm most thankful for is not that awesome game I watched on TV. It's not that, that really cool thing I bought at Walmart, Right? The things I'm most thankful for are the people in my life. It's always centered around people. The conversation I had with somebody, the experience I, sh I shared with somebody else. People are what matter most. People are also what are most complicated about our lives. What are the most messy about our lives? What are the most broken things about our lives? And that's why we're a community that's centered around the gospel. 
because we so desperately need the gospel of Jesus if we're to be the kind of community that we're called to be. And this is what transitions us so perfectly into Paul's next section here in the introduction. We're going to see Paul's heart for the people that he's writing to. The, the heart that he has for the Roman people. And you look at this with me, there's, there's five things we see. Number one, he's thankful for them. Look at verse 8, Romans 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in the world. So Paul, he first says, I'm grateful for you. And why does he say specifically that I'm, that I'm thankful? Because your faith is being proclaimed to the whole world. People are hearing about your faith in Jesus. He says, that makes me do backflips. There's nothing that brings me greater joy. And one of the things I love more than anything in this church is Wednesday nights when I'm at Celebrate Recovery and I hear the testimonies of people's lives who have been changed by Jesus. And to not just hear that for them, but then they're sharing that. They're sharing, they're proclaiming their faith. And other people are being encouraged in the same ways that they were encouraged by Jesus. And it's a ripple effect that goes to the ends of the earth. And he says, that is what I am thankful for in your lives. And the next thing he says is, he prayed for them. He not only is thankful for them, he, he prayed for them. Verse 9, for God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's been praying for these believers in Rome. Now, they would have never known that he was praying for them unless he told them. And how encouraging. How, and in your life, when someone comes up to you and says, man, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. I just wanted to let you know that. And, and here we have a call, as we see Paul's example, not just to pray for other believers, but to let them know we're praying for them. One of the things that I've been trying to do in my life is as, as someone comes to mind and I pray for them, I shoot them a text message. And I just wanted to let you know I love you, I'm praying for you, thinking about you. And the difference that can make in someone's day, you don't know how God might use that to encourage, to give them courage. And one of the specific things he prays for here is that he might meet these Romans. Remember, he's never been to Rome to meet these believers. And he says, my prayer is that I might be able to come and meet you. Now, he's going to talk about his plans in Romans 15. But what we want to see here is, is what he's talking about. Remember, this is the end of his third and final missionary journey. And he's in Corinth, which is kind of this little peninsula here at the bottom of what's modern-day Greece. And, and this is where he's writing this letter from. And he says, here's my plans next. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And the Gentile churches he's been preaching to, he's also been receiving financial gifts that they've been giving for him to take to the, the poor in Jerusalem. The poor Jewish believers who they want to give to. He says, I'm going to bring this gift to the Jews in Jerusalem, and then I'm going to come to you in Rome. And I'm going to see you, and it's a strategic place, not just to see the Romans, but I'm also going to launch from there over to what's modern-day Spain. The end of the Roman Empire, the known world at the time, I want to take the gospel to where it's never been. I want to take the light to the darkest places in the known world. And I'm going to do that through Rome. And so he's praying that God would bring him there. Now, don't we have to be careful what we pray for sometimes? Because you know how Paul gets there. He gets there. But it's in chains. That Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's, he's put into chains because of his faith. Then he's brought. But even on the way to Rome, he goes through shipwreck. I mean, the, the dude goes through the ringer. God brings him to Rome. He's on trial before Caesar. He's put into prison for two years. And what we learn from this is God will get you where he wants you to go. He will answer those prayers. But that doesn't mean that there won't be trials along the way. It doesn't mean the road's going to be smooth. 
In fact, we're called as believers. He's promised us, if you want to follow me, if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will go through hardships. But the promise is I'm going to get you where I'm taking you. I'm going to finish what I started in you. So he, he thanks God for them, and then he loves them. He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So we see his shepherd's heart here. I long to see you. I want to know you. I want to, I, and then this is what he says specifically, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now what he's, what he's saying here, he, the, the context is not like spiritual gifts like we know, like tongues and healings. Like he's not a spiritual gift Oprah, right? And you get some tongues, and you get some healings, and everybody gets a prophecy, right? Like that's not, that's not his heart here. But he's, he's contrasting it with a physical gift. So he's like, I'm not coming and bringing you a fruitcake. I'm bringing you a spiritual gift, a gift for your spirit. And he says what he's going to bring in verse 12. That is, I'm going to be more specific. I'm going to bring you a gift for your spirit. And here specifically, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He already said, I've heard of your faith. I've been encouraged by yours. And now I want you to know mine. And I want us to encourage each other by our faith. And then he turns, and and number four is that he was in debt to them. That I want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I haven't been able to come to you till now, and we'll see in chapter 15, it's because he's been busy preaching the gospel in other places. And he says to them, then, I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation to come to you. Now, why? Why does he owe them? Why does he owe them anything? What have they ever done for him? He said, you don't own me, Right? I don't have to do anything for you. Why, why is he under obligation to these, to these individuals in Rome? Well, remember what he said last week in verse 1. He came out of the gates talking about his identity. He said, I'm Paul, a servant, which he said means a slave, a doulos for Jesus. I'm his slave, called to be an apostle. So he's my master. He's my authority. He tells me what to do. And my master has sent me. He sent me for what purpose? Set apart for the gospel. So my master, to whom I'm a slave, has set me apart to preach the gospel. He said specifically to the Gentiles. So the reason I'm under obligation to you is because God sent me to you with this good, beautiful message. And then he says, I'm under obligation to who? Both the Greeks and the barbarians. To the wise and to the foolish. Now this is not a very nice dichotomy, isn't it? (laughs) Like you would not want to be on the barbarian foolish side of this. Like who's he talking to? Well, you remember, it's the Roman Empire, but it's very much still a Greek world and a Greek culture. The Greek, empi- the Greek Empire was the one that came before them, and, and we see they're very much still under Greek influence. And the Greeks are pretty cocky. And they see the world in two ways. There's the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Now, can you imagine if like, that's how I saw the world? Like, I look out at all of you, and there's Justin, and then there's not Justin, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like what do we, I mean, that's, we call that ethnocentricity, like on country terms, right? Like, I'm an American, all the other countries, they're not Russia, they're not China, they're just not America, right? And, and this is kind of the way that they saw the world. And in their minds, they saw the Greeks, they saw themselves as intelligent, as cultured. And they saw the rest of the world as these unsophisticated cavemen, the non-Greeks, the barbarians, as they called them. And here's what Paul's saying. He says, I don't care if if you deem yourself a Greek or a barbarian, the wise or the foolish. And here I want to quote the Backstreet Boys. I don't care who you are, 
where you're from, if you're Greek or not, I'll tell you the gospel. You watch, yeah, 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 yeah. You watch out, billboard charts, it's coming, baby, it's coming. So he says, I, I'm preaching the gospel to everybody. I'm under obligation to everybody, Jew or Greek, wise or foolish. And then number five, if you're following along in your notes, I'm skipping over it, but it says he was eager to preach the gospel to them. There's your free blank, okay? And we're going to come back to that verse. But then Paul, he's going to lay out a thesis statement. And when letters were written at the time, they would kind of give you a nutshell version of the rest of the letter. So here he's going to give us in 6 and 17, here's the theme of the, the book. And what he says in verses 16 and 17, he's going to give us an equation. An equation that he'll spend the rest of the time unpacking. And the equation is this. Faith in the gospel. And the gospel, we said, is ultimately a person. So a faith in Jesus equals righteousness. Faith in the gospel equals righteousness. This is the acorn of what is the oak tree of Romans. And he'll go and unpack that. And we'll talk about it. But to do so, um, we have to go back to grammar school. All right? So if you will with me, we're going to call this fun with connecting words. Okay? And we just put the word fun in there because otherwise you might not think it's fun. Um, so fun with connecting words. If you look at specific words as you're reading, whether it's the Bible or anything, you've got to pay attention to specific words. And these connecting words can be like because or for or, or therefore. And whenever you see one of these kind of words, we always want to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? What's the therefore, therefore? What two things are being connected and why? And we can put together some things that, that might not be put together otherwise. So for example, if I was to say, and Ryan is tired today because he didn't sleep last night, right? Now, so I, I'm connecting something. The reason that Ryan's been falling asleep during my sermon, I see everything, right? is because, it's not because I'm a boring preacher, we know that couldn't be the case. It's because, what was the first part of the sentence? Because he didn't sleep last night, because he was playing Xbox all night, right? Oh, oh too close to home. So this is, why, this is what we're connecting here. Or if I said, man, Jeff picked the wrong key earlier, therefore, we all sounded like junior high girls, right? We were trying, how great is our God, sing with me. And we're going really high because, why? So what's the therefore, therefore? It shows us the reason we were singing an octave way too high is because Jeff, that knucklehead, started the song in the wrong key. I don't know why I'm just blasting you guys this morning. Okay, got to get this out. So you see the, the connecting words. And, and what we want to see here is when we say, what's the therefore, therefore, in, in verses 16, 17, and 18, there are four force. The word for. And what we're going to ask ourselves today is, what are the four fours for? What are the four fours for? And this will help us unlock what it is that Paul's trying to say, not just in these three verses, but the entire book of Romans. So let's look at Paul's thesis here. Four fours, the first one. It says, four, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now why? What's the first four for? Well, let's look back at 15, because that's the connecting. In verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So he goes, look, this is why I am like a kid on Christmas morning. Here's why I can't wait, why I'm pumped up to preach the gospel to you for it is a gospel that I'm not ashamed of, which implies what? That he could be ashamed of it. Now, why would Paul be ashamed of this gospel? Well, let's think about what this gospel is. If the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again, let's, let's rewind to this time when Jesus died for us. And you remember that the majority of Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, 
when he came, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah, his own people rejected him. And not only rejected him, they said, you're, you're claiming blasphemy. And they hated him for it. And they got the Romans to get in on it. And the Romans and the Jews, the Jews and Gentiles alike, they killed Jesus for this message. And this is the same message that Paul has been preaching 25 years since Jesus went back to heaven. And this message has gotten Paul beaten, stoned, mocked, imprisoned. And now he's taking this gospel to the most important city in the most powerful empire on earth. And here's his message. 25 years ago, this dude, this poor guy from this little no-name town amongst the hundreds and thousands of towns that this empire has controlled and dominated claims to be the one thing that stands between all of you and an eternal wrath of God. And this is his gospel. We gotta ask ourselves, am I ashamed of this gospel? Like, well, do I believe this? And am I ashamed to let other people know that I believe it? Am I ashamed to let my coworkers know that I believe this truth about this man, Jesus, and what he claimed to be for me? Am I ashamed of my family, my relationships? Am I ashamed to declare my identity, my allegiance to this gospel? And you think about Paul. He didn't have it any easier than we did. We live in a culture that by and large is mocking our message. But remember, he lived among the Greeks who considered themselves to be the most sophisticated culture of all time. Philosophy and rational thought. And to them, this was a bunch of non-truth. Right, how's that? And the Jews as well, even worse, they thought this was blasphemy and worthy to kill Jesus because of what he claimed to be doing and who he claimed to be. And in Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So the, the Gentile world, the Greek world says this is foolish and the Jewish people are offended by it and killed Jesus and, and imprisoned and beat Paul because of this gospel. But Paul says, I don't care. I do not care. I have no shame in this gospel and I will preach it until I die. And he did, and he did. So why is he not ashamed of this gospel? Let's go to the next four. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The reason I'm eager to preach it and I'm not ashamed of it is for it is the power of God. The reason I'm not ashamed of this is because it's the power of God. Now the Greek word here is the word dunamis. And the word dunamis, you might even see it in English as you're looking at that word. It's where we get our word dynamite or dynamo. We're talking about power, right? He says, this is the power of God. Now the Roman citizens... They thought they were a part of power. They, they, here they're a part of the most powerful empire of all time. But, but he says this is the power of God, okay? And God is much bigger than the biggest of all empires. And I always love picturing, just for perspective, here's God holding the entire mighty Roman Empire in the palm of his hand. And he looks down. Oh, look at the cute little empire. You know? Like, when we're, God can take any empire out with the pinky of his hand, so to speak. God is not intimidated by all of Rome. He's more powerful than all. But what is the power of God there to do? The power unto what? This is not ashamed of this gospel. For it's the power of God. For salvation. It's the power to save. See, the, the, what he's saying here is the most powerful empire on earth cannot save you. It cannot offer you security. Only God can. 
And notice where he says the power lies. Look very carefully. For it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The gospel. The gospel. Now listen, some of you love my preaching. Some of you are like, eh, it's free. Like, you know, whatever. Some of you are like, where is Larry, right? He never sang Backstreet Boys when he was on stage. But the, the power, listen, the power to save someone's life is not in my ability to be eloquent. It's not in my ability to put just the right illustration in, tell the right story, the right PowerPoint slide, just the right inflection in my voice. If I tell enough jokes and balance that with enough truth, like it'll all come out and you'll know what you need to know to be saved and it'll save you. No, the power of the gospel is what saves. And well, that gives us courage because when we go out to proclaim this thing that we're not to be ashamed of, it's not on how well we can explain it. Now, it does matter how we present it. It does matter how we communicate it. That's not irrelevant. But it's saying the power to save, the dunamis to save is the gospel. It's the good news. It's Jesus himself. We're just the messengers. And who's saved by this saving power? Everyone who believes. Every single person on earth who believes this good news will be saved. And we'll unpack what that means to believe in, in just a minute. And he says, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, what's he saying here? The Greek is just a way to say non-Jew, Gentile. Remember, it's the Greek world and their mindset. So here's the Jew and the non-Jew. And what he's not saying is that God loves Jews more than the Gentiles. Like, I prioritize them first. If there's a, a burning building that God runs in and does a yarmulke check, Right? Or, or a circumcision check, which would be a little bit more invasive, right? And then we'll save those people first, right? That's, that's not his point here. What he's talking about is historic order. Remember Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Like, it started, Jesus came as a Jew to Jerusalem. And, and the first people that hear this gospel are the Jews in Jerusalem. And then it's taken out to the ends of the earth. It's historic order. It's not God saying, I love one more than the other. God... For, so God, for God so loved the world. He loves everybody. Let's preach first to the Jew. Third, four. The reason I'm not ashamed, the reason it's the power to save for those who believe is this reason. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is why it's the power of God to save. For in it, in the gospel, it reveals God's righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean for God's righteousness to be revealed? Now, this is a big Christian Bible word, righteousness, and it's a court word, courtroom word. And what it means is when the judge, someone comes before the judge, and he slams his gavel down, and he says, innocent, right in my sight, that before the judge, before the standard of the law, you come out clean. You are what you're supposed to be. You're innocent. You're right. It is the rightness of somebody. That's what it means, righteousness. And, and, and so what he's saying is that the gospel shows how God is right in making us right in his sight. Faith in the gospel gives us the ability to be right in God's sight. That's his point. And he spends the rest of the book unpacking this acorn this thesis. And I want to take just a, a brief 30,000 foot overview as we fly along the book of Romans to show us what he's going to be show, how he's going to unpack this. So we saw the introduction last week and then this week, the first 17 verses, and then he's going to get into sin. And here's the fourth four. For I'm not ashamed, for it's the power of God to save, for it reveals how we can be right. For, verse 18, we'll start there next week, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
So here's what he's saying. The first thing we're going to see is that every single one of us is wrong. The gavel goes down on you and I, and we're wrong. Guilty, 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 guilty before God. And this is why we need to know how to be made right with God, is because right now we're wrong with God on the other side of the gospel. And God will be perfectly right, perfectly justified, to send fire from heaven down right this second and burn us all up. That would be completely right of him. We deserve it because of our sin. Every single one of us needs to be saved from his right wrath, his right punishment for our sin because of our wrongness. So the first way he reveals his righteousness is revealed in condemning the whole world. That's what we'll see in the first three chapters. It's very depressing. (laughs) Here's why the world is wrong, but there is good news. Because the next section, three through five, he's going to show how we are saved from that wrongness, from that guilty verdict. How does God remain right in both punishing our sin and yet keeping the promise he made back to Adam and Eve in the garden? What did he say? I'm going to make a way. I'm going to save you. So how can he bring mankind back to himself when mankind is unholy and God is holy? There was only one way that he could be right in bringing us back to him, and that was through the person of Jesus. That Jesus took our wrongness and gave us his rightness. There was an exchange there. There was no other way that our sins could have been justly punished and we were given perfect standing before God. The second way he reveals his righteousness is that he reveals it in his saving the world through Jesus. And then we're going to get into sanctification. That's a fancy way of saying we grow as believers. We're made more holy in in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And this is a fantastic section of the book. Might be my favorite part because what he shows us here is the gospel goes much deeper than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. This is not just for the unbeliever to punch their ticket to heaven. The gospel is for us every minute of our lives for now and eternity. It's how we're saved initially and how we grow to become more like Jesus. The next way he's going to reveal it, he's going to reveal his rightness in growing us. And it's all centered around the gospel. Then he moves to his sovereignty. And if there's ever a place that I'm going to get more emails and arguments, it's chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's going to reveal his sovereign plan his good, right, just plan over the human course of history with both the Jew and the Gentile. This one's crazy, and it's really fun, and it's really scary, but it's really good. Finally, service. Verse, uh, chapters 12 through 15. He's going to show how his righteousness is revealed in us serving one another in love. He calls this people out for his name, the church, and he's going to show us how through the gospel, how we can have a gospel-centered community. The way the gospel should shape and inform our relationship with the government and relationship with one another. When we have different levels of conscience, he's going to walk us through all of that. Some of those practical day-by-day living that's offered in the book. And then his conclusion at the end of chapter 15 and verse 16. So how, how do we get this righteousness, this rightness before God that we so desperately need and are so desperately void of? And he shows us the we, the, our end of the deal. He says it's, it's for salvation to everyone who believes, verse 16. It's the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, which is another way of saying from start to finish by faith. The moment you become a believer, on until you see him, until your faith is made sight, it's all about faith. In fact, he quotes Habakkuk. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. You want to have life? You want to live the kind of life you're called to live here on earth? It's by faith. So what in the world is faith? What does that mean? I love it. A, a man named Alva J. McLean, and a general rule in my life, if someone's name is Alva, you listen to them, okay? So here's what Alva has to say about what faith means. He says, faith 
is just the simple trusting acceptance of what God gives. It's just the simple trusting acceptance of what God gives. And he makes it even easier. God says, I give. And the heart responds, I take. God, God says, I give. And the heart says, I take. And I love this. There was, there was a tribal man, not even able to read or write. Most of the world would write him off. But he knew Jesus. And when he was asked one time, what is, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? And this is what he said. I, I don't know that I've ever come up with a better another def- definition. He says, faith is the hand of the heart. Faith is the hand of the heart. It's the thing in us that receives what God's giving to us. See, the law said be perfect. But we had no ability in ourselves to be perfect. We could do nothing right in God's sight. The gospel says, you need to be perfect in my sight. Here's Jesus. He was perfect for you. And all we have to do with our heart is to receive what God is freely giving us, what we could never earn on our own. And we ask ourselves this morning, is the hand of my heart receiving what God is freely giving me? And man, if yours isn't, you're not receiving this free gift. And do not let the sun go down on today. We're talking to me, talking to someone who knows Jesus. If there's anything we've learned this week, so we don't know what tomorrow brings. And my prayer is that just like through Jesus' death came life to many, that God would use the life and the death of my friend Doug Connor to bring life to many. I'm already seeing the specific ways that he's been working through this situation, through the family. And I pray that more people come to Jesus through this situation. Let's pray. Father God, we need your gospel. This world is broken. This world has no hope without you. But you sent your son to be right for the wrong, to give life to the dead, to give hope to the hopeless. And God, my prayer is that those in this room that have come this morning, if there's anyone in here that has never received what God's freely given them, that they would receive that today. Convict them of their sin. Convict them of their need for your righteousness. But then convict them that Jesus has come and he's given it all to them. And for those of us that are believers, that need to know in a tough week that there is a God on the throne that he is not giving up, that he will get us where he's taking us, even if it's through shipwrecks, even if it's in chains, He is a faithful God. Oh, God, give us grace to trust you more. As we offer these songs to you, may you give our hearts the grace to believe who Jesus is, who you said that he is. It's in his beautiful, powerful, saving name. Amen.